topic is called derailing leadership. And we're going to look in Nehemiah chapter 6 and we're going to see very clearly that the enemy is trying to derail the leadership of Nehemiah. He wants to do it any way he can. And we're going to see three waves of attacks that are going to happen in our passage. We're going to see that the enemy is going to use distraction, he's going to use accusations, and he's going to do everything he can to discredit Nehemiah. So those are the three things that are going to happen to Nehemiah. But what's interesting is that this book that was written thousands of years ago is still so relevant to us today because today this is exactly what the enemy wants to do in regards to us. He wants to distract you as an individual. He wants to do anything he can to bring accusations against you and against your character. And he wants to do anything to discredit you and me in terms of our influence in our world. Now, I don't know if you've noticed it so far, but there has been a very clear unseen enemy that's throughout this book. Hasn't there been? Satan has been orchestrating so many things that you don't see him, but you see his presence all over the place. We know that he does not want Nehemiah to fortify the city. We know that he doesn't want Nehemiah to be the kind of leader that he needs to be and to stay on the wall. Because we see so many attempts to draw him off the task, to draw him off of the wall. There's always an unseen enemy in our life. But also know that with an unseen enemy, there is a seen enemy. And in this story, we've seen the arch enemy of Sanballat, of Geshem, of Tobiah, these are all individuals that are coming directly against Nehemiah. And at times you just sense the pressure that Nehemiah is under and how these people bring this pressure upon them and there's a presence of evil there. My friends, there's always going to be a presence of evil in our world. There's always going to be that unseen enemy and yes, there will even be faces to the enemy in, in terms of our life. There's going to be people that just simply don't like you. There are going to be people that simply oppose you because you are you. That's what they're going to do. We're going to see that all the time. But here's what I think should have been encouraging to Nehemiah, and it should be encouraging to you and I as well. The fact is, God, who is unseen, was very much present. You know what First John says? Greater is he who is in me than what? And he was in the world. We have God on our side. We have God working within our heart, giving us direction, giving us guidance the way that we need that guidance. So we have the presence of God. Just as there is an unseen evil presence in Nehemiah's life, there was the unseen presence of God in Nehemiah's life and in our life. And just as there was a seen enemy, yes, we have seen enemies, but we also have co-workers. Look beside you. Look at the people in this room. God has given us each other. He has given us each other, and that's why together is so important. Because if the enemy can do what he can to divide the church of Jesus Christ, to divide us, he is going to accomplish much. But if we understand that we are for each other, that we are with each other, yes, we have differences, yes, there's times that we make decisions that we don't like, 
but we work together and we stay together and we have a tenacious spirit about being together. That's what God wants in the body of Christ. And if there's ever a time for the church to unite, it's now. My friends, I want you to know over the next several weeks, we're kind of unveiling what I call an Acts 1-8 initiative. Acts 1-8 talks about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to have influences in these different parts. And that's why at Mission View, you're going to see ways in which we're going to try to have a greater influence in our Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and we'll define those places and uttermost parts of the world. You just saw one of them. We're going to try to raise on April 2nd $15,000 for a deep water well. That's our project this year. Our hope is that we can raise $15,000 for the first phase of that project. The reason for it is the village that we're going to adopt, they have to have sanitary environment for us, for them to... Uh, for, for them to be able to drink and to be able to, to live in a, in a well-nourished way. And then eventually there will be a church, there will be other things, four phases that we're going to do each year. We're going to try to do bite-sized pieces, and I want you to know this is a step of faith. This is outside of the normal budget. The whole project's going to cost about $75,000 over the next four years, but we're going to trust that God would do that. But it can happen together. I believe what you're, when you leave, you're going to be getting these water bottles. And there's different instructions. So don't think that it's just like uh, some false advertisement here. There's actually information on here that's relevant to you. Look at it as you leave. And this is going to be your reminder for you to think about that. But understand, together, together is important. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much that Nehemiah has been so practical. And Lord, I shouldn't stand amazed at that at all because you are a God who wrote this book. You are a God that gave it to us for our instruction. And Lord, I pray that you would help open our eyes and our hearts to what it is that you want us to, uh, to see today. And Lord, I just pray, Father, that you would use this for your honor and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Now, if you'd open your Bibles to Nehemiah 6, and as we do, I'm going to give a little uh, side note here. We have a friend amongst us. We have many friends, but Haluk, would you, uh, Haluk, you got to stand just for a minute. This is, this is I think, the only Turk in, in the building right now, so right? Haluk is part of our church plant that we work with in Antalya. He's, uh, we're about to send a small team at the end of April. If you recall, last August, we were going to send a team, but there was kind of like an overthrow in government, a kind of a coup, and we thought it's probably not the best time. So we were able to transfer the tickets to a later time, and so the later time is upon us. At the end of April, we will be sending a team, and Haluk's happened to be in town for business and so he has been able to join us today. So make sure you make him feel welcome in the comments. So we're going to look at three attempts to derail the work. And so the first one is through distraction. Look at verses 1 to 4 as I read it and see if you can pick out the kind of distraction that takes place. It says in verse 1, 
Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of, the, of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hokaphirim on the plain of Ono. But they intended to do harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them the same way. Now as we read these verses, we see the first subtle attempt to derail the work of God. It would appear that Samballat, Tobiah, and Geshem to kind of take a different approach than before. Before, they were gathering armies around the city of Jerusalem and threatening, threatening them with their life. And so it would appear that they're kind of coming with a peace offering. They're kind of coming, well, giving the olive branch to them in a much more subdued way. And so we see in that, we see here when he says, come let us meet together, the word together it indicates peace. Let's come together in peace. Let's just sit down and let's talk about this for a little bit. Now, there's something that you might not pick up right away, but they say, let's go to the place of Ono. Now, Ono doesn't mean anything to you and I, but what it was was a city that was north of Jerusalem, about 20 miles. And it would have been considered a vacation resort area. Beautiful valleys, lush, lush hillsides. And so this was a place where they're like, let's just get away to that really peaceful place. And I can imagine if I put myself in Nehemiah's shoes just for a moment, how tempting that would have been. I mean, think about it. Have you ever been in your workplace and you're, you haven't had a vacation for a while and you're just hitting the grind day after day and all of a sudden you're daydreaming and you're thinking of white sand beaches. Your toes sinking into the sand as the waves come crashing over your legs. And some of you just went there right now. So, yeah, this could have been a temptation for Nehemiah just to get away. I mean, his arms were, are, are, are weary of lifting all these bricks. His, his ears are weary of hearing Nehemiah this and Nehemiah that. What do you want, Nehemiah? How should we do this, Nehemiah? And maybe, just maybe... There's this thought of, maybe we can come together. Wouldn't it be cool if there was this sense of unity that we could finally have in this land, in this place? Now, fortunately, the people of Israel had Nehemiah leading them instead of Steve Marshall, because I might have been snookered into something like that. The elders certainly wouldn't have allowed that to happen. But Nehemiah, no, he doesn't do that. Nehemiah doesn't compromise. Now, some people think, well, compromise is good. Friends, compromise is good when both parties want truth and when both parties have a love for each other. But that wasn't the case in this situation. If anything, Nehemiah gives us a solid principle to adhere to. This isn't on the screen, but I want you to write down three principles I'm going to give you today, and I want you to think about that. And with each principle, there will be a question that will come out. And here's the first principle. We must be laser-focused on the most important thing. 
We must be laser focused on the most important thing. Nehemiah didn't get off the wall because he knew what was most important for him and for the nation of Israel. See, this addresses the issue of the tyranny of the urgent. In our life, we find so many things that seem to be important, but they really are not. Years ago, I considered flipping houses on the side. I thought, you know what? I rationalized. I thought, you know what? This will be great as my kids are growing up. I can teach them a trade, thinking that it would be good for them to learn how to do construction with their hands, as if my kids really could care less about doing any kind of work at that time in their life. But that was my rationale. And I thought, you know what? The extra income, it can't be bad. I could tithe a little bit more. I could give a little bit more. And, well, I mean, it'd give us a little breathing room in our budget. We could possibly go on a little bit of a nicer vacation. We could eat out a little bit more. And, of course, there's always the opportunity to share Christ with the people in the trade industry of, of construction. And, and before long, the whole construction community has come to Christ. So this is in my mind, thinking and rationalizing that this would be a good thing. But as I prayed about it, God did not allow that to happen. And what God reminded me was, Steve, you're already pretty busy in the ministry. I do not want you to be distracted and for you to come off the wall of your responsibility. You see, the, the reality is there's opportunities that will try to get us off the wall of our main responsibility, and they will come around all the time. And I'm not saying they're evil things. There's lots of good things to be a part of in life. But what is the most important thing that I need to have? This is what God wants. He wants us to evaluate what our focus should be. Now, my friends, I think that if we don't evaluate that, then there's going to be things that will, if I didn't evaluate in my own life, I would have been out golfing with the guys all the time. I would have been pursuing my special hobby. And before long, I would not have been at the helm of my responsibility for the home. I know that. You see, the enemy wants us to pursue opportunities that are outside of what is perfect and what God wants us to do. See, the enemy masquerades as an angel of what? Light. Opportunity. And I think opportunities sometimes can pull us off the wall so that we are not making the greatest kingdom impact that God wants for us. So here's our question. What is the most important thing God wants you to do? See, I can't answer that for you. I can't answer that for you, but it is a question that each of us need to evaluate for ourselves, and I do believe it should be a short list. I believe it's to lead our families. I believe it's to love our spouse. I believe it's to teach the Word of God to our children and our grandchildren. I believe it's to be dedicated to our church. I believe it's to be an influence and sharing Christ with those that were within our circle of responsibility. Friends, once we know what our focus is, then we could have the tenacity of Nehemiah and say, as he said to the enemy, 
I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Do you have that? Do you have that? Just know that the enemy does not want to hear those words. So we have distractions. So that's the first attempt to derail. Here's the second attempt to derail. It's going to be in verses 5 to 9, but let me just make it build up to this a little bit. In verses 5 to 9, we're going to see that he's going to bring accusations. But what's interesting is at the end of the first distraction, the enemy came to him not one time, not two times, not three times, but four different times trying to get him to the uh, Ono Summit. But Nehemiah didn't bite any one of those times. Now this tells us something about Nehemiah. It tells us that Nehemiah was a person that operated on the basis of his convictions. That's his focus. His convictions as opposed to opinions. See, if we're operating on our feelings and our opinions, then we can be pulled any which way. But if we are operating on convictions, then we're not going to move. Nehemiah didn't move. So since that didn't work, there was a fifth attempt, and this time they would bring accusation. And the accusation was pretty serious. If it proved to be true, it would be a death sentence to Nehemiah. This is what he says in verse 5. This is what it says. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning, uh, pro pro proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king, talking about the king of Persia, will hear of these reports. So now, come, let us take counsel together. In this fifth appeal, Sanballat goes to him with an open letter reporting what Nehemiah intended to do. Nehemiah, we know that you are intending to lead a rebellion against the king of Persia, and we know that you have planned this out to such details that you have prophets scattered all over the place, and you are going to allow them to announce that there is a new king in Judah and that you are that king. We're going to tell on you, so you better sit down and talk with us. Now, before we hear Nehemiah's response to this accusation, I want to point out two things about this little dialogue of what takes place. First of all, it's an open letter. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to you and I, but if something was to be given in confidentiality, it would be written on a parchment, it would be rolled up in a scroll, and it would be stamped with a seal wax, and it would be delivered deliberately to the person so that it was known that it was a confidential information given to that person. That would show respect to that person. But the open letter actually was a sign of great disrespect to Nehemiah's leadership because the open letter was symbolic that it was open for anybody and everybody to catch wind of what this charge was and what was the content. And the idea behind it is that this little leak of information would raise a little brouhaha in the nation and it would create controversy all over the place. Now, 
if we could only imagine in our own society little leaks of information getting out and it creating a brouhaha in society. It's so far-fetched. But this was exactly the intention of what was trying to be accomplished here. And the whole point of it is that controversy has a way of undermining leadership. We can see that in our world today, can't we? It's designed to undermine leadership. So here's the second thing I want you to point out. I want to point out. They use words as weapons. Words as weapons. Do you realize that if you want accusations to be flying around, that words are the first things to go out? They use words like, it's been reported. It's come to my attention, they say. And so words are used, and when you use phrases like it's been reported, these are key phrases that just open it up to hearsay. It opens it up to gossip. It opens it up to speculation and interpretation. And that was the intention here. Notice that the people that were doing this, Tobiah and, and Sanballat, these were people that were observing the wall, but they weren't on the wall themselves. They weren't a part of the mission of God. Here's what is difficult. The difficulty is, is that not everybody wants you to succeed. Not everybody in your business, not everybody in your workplace, not everybody in your neighborhood wants you to succeed. What I have found to be true the hard way in the church is that usually those that are hungry for the latest snippet of gossip or the latest bit of slander or information are standing just like these guys on the fringes of God's kingdom work but not engaged in it. You can identify these people because they are often in a hurry to disseminate information before it's found out whether it is true or not. And my friends, that's happened in the church it will always happen in the church. As long as we have this thing, it will happen. And so this is the accusations that come against Nehemiah. See, when you are a leader, whether it is in the family, whether it is in church, whether it is in business, whether it's in community, you will always be falsely accused somewhere along the line. This takes us to another principle that I want you to write down, I want you to think about, and that is this. We must pay close attention to our character and let God defend our reputation. We must pay close attention to our character and let God defend our reputation. Notice that this is exactly what Nehemiah does. This is his reply in verses 8 and 9. Then I sent to him saying, No such thing as you say has been done. For you are inventing it out of your mind. For they all want to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Though these accusations were actually treasonous, they were serious, Nehemiah knew they couldn't be proven to the king of Persia. And so what he does is he says, you know what, Lord? I'm just going to deny, deny it, and I'm going to get back to work. And I'm going to trust myself to you. 
So here's another question that goes with the principle. Who are you looking for for approval? Who are you looking to for approval? See, a leader will always look to God first. Not to the friends, not to allies, but to God. And this is what Nehemiah did. So we have distractions. We have accusations. And here's the third derailing ability of of these guys. It was to discredit. Take a look at what happens in verses 10 through 14 in this plot that unfolds. Take a look at verse 10. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Metabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man should such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and I saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Samballot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Samballot, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophets of Nodiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Now, at first glance, you might not understand exactly what's happening here, but to set the context here, in that land, prophets were greatly respected. People that were prophets were greatly respected because they foretold the word of God, but there was a key to a prophet. They had to be truthful. And so there's a a prophet that arise, and his name is Samiah. And Samiah probably not only was a prophet, but had some relationship or some uh, lineage to the priesthood because he had access to the temple. Now, he is homebound, and so Nehemiah decides to go and visit with this person. Now, I would imagine for Nehemiah, there, wasn't a whole, there weren't a whole lot of people that he could take counsel with, but if there's anybody you should be able to take counsel with, it should be the prophet's of the land. Now look at Nehemiah, what he's, he's, he's undergone so far, the pressures he's been under. He has been the only one that has been on the wall. He has had the mantle of leadership squarely upon his shoulders. He has seen external threats of war come against him. He has seen internal threats, as Evan talked about last week so beautifully. And now he's had these distractions, these accusations, And so he goes to this man's house, a person that should be trusted. And so this prophet looks at him and he says this. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Now this sets Nehemiah on his heels because here is a trusted prophet saying, Listen, Nehemiah, there's a group of people that I know that are coming to kill you. And I think the only safe avenue for you is for you to go into the holy place within the temple. I will go with you. This is the place where you need to be safe. But Nehemiah knew from childhood on that no lay person was to go into the holy place. 
There was only a high priest that was able to go into the holy place. And he knew that anybody that went in there, they should be struck dead immediately. But it was almost as if Shemaiah was saying to him, desperate times require desperate measures. They're coming to kill you. Now for an ordinary person, they may, this may have sounded reasonable, but not to Nehemiah. Had Nehemiah had his eyes fixed on his own welfare, he may have compromised the truth of God's word. Because he knew the word of God said, you are not to do this. And he chose to do exactly what God said he should do. Even if it did risk his life. And he looks at Shemaiah in the eyes and he says, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go. See, it's at this point that Nehemiah knew that Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem had hired Shemaiah and to bring about another conspiracy. And in verse 14, Nehemiah reveals the plot. He says, for this purpose, he, Shemaiah, was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so that they could what? Give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Interestingly, Nehemiah prays for them. He prays for them that God would remember the evil acts of Jeremiah the prophet and the other prophets that were a part of this and that God repay them. And then what does he do? He leaves it in God's hands. What do we do? We want to take action. We want to make sure that, vindict that we become at times vindictive or that we get some kind of revenge or that this plot is known. But he doesn't do that at all. Nehemiah says, it's in your hands, God. It's in your hands. And he leaves it. Now, before we depart from this discrediting attempt, there's another principle, and this is the third one. And that is this. Truth will always point us to safety. My friends, truth will always point us to safety. Nehemiah believed this. That's why he allowed the word of God to govern his life. And that's why he could not enter into the holy place within the temple. Because truth was what was governing his life. And he knew that truth would always lead him to a place of safety. It would always provide for him. It would always protect him. And my friends, truth will always do that. And sometimes in this world, we don't think of it that way. See, there are some people, even in the church, that are like, you know what, I like truth, it's good, it's okay, but you know what, I, it's at times you got to compromise. you just got to kind of go to the middle of the road. Sometimes truth is going to kind of take away some of my fun. It's going to take away some of the things that I really want to do. No, truth will always protect you. Truth is like bumper bowling. It's always going to give you a channel of success. Now, I wish I could bumper bowl every time because I would do so much better in the game. It provides a channel of a success. And here's the last question. How do you see truth? How do you see truth? See, in answering this question, the answer is seen in your actions. It's not seen in your words. Because in the body of Christ, we're going to say, of course, yes, I love truth. 
Truth should be a part of my life. Truth is everything to me. But if this thing remains on the shelf throughout the week, then you don't believe that. You just don't believe it. Many people, this is the first time, and I'm not accusing, I'm just saying, historically it seems this way within the body of Christ. We pick this up on Sunday, we dust it off, we go to church, we open it up, we study it, and we say, man, that was good. There was some good stuff in God's Word. And then we close it, and then we open it up again the next Sunday. And if that is your pattern, you don't believe truth is going to guide you and protect you. At least it's not seen in your actions. And so if we are going to be a people of truth, then we allow the truth to get in here. We allow the truth to sink down to our heart, and it comes out in our leadership. Because truth is going to provide and protect you as a leader. How do you see truth? Distractions, accusations, discrediting. At the very end, what we see at the end of this passage is a great work is accomplished. See, despite the opposition, the wall, it says in our passage, is completed in 52 days. Yes, it was excellent leadership. Yes, it was incredible, an incredible grit mentality amongst the people. But most importantly, what we're going to find in the closing verses is that the people assigned success to a holy alliance to God. It's because of our alliance with God. Nehemiah led us this way. It's with God that we have success. I could see the post-game interview with the people of Israel. Just like at the end of the Super Bowl. They're all sweaty. They're, they got grass stains all over the place. They're stinking because they've been in the game for so long. And we know they haven't changed their clothes for a while. And each one says, yeah, I just uh, I want to thank God. I thank God because he's the one that gave the success. One after another. Well, what's interesting is in the verses, it's not only the people of Israel that are giving credit to God, but it's the community around that doesn't even believe. Take a look at what happens in verse 15. So the wall was finished in, uh, on the 25th day of the month of Elul, 52 days, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around were afraid and felt, great, felt greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Church, it's only going to be through a holy alliance that we accomplish anything in this world. In our Jerusalem, our Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. It's only going to be because of our holy alliance with God that we will have success. Now I wish the passage kind of stopped here. Because it would be really cool just to leave on a high note. But the passage doesn't stop here because he goes into the unholy alliance and it tells about that in a minute. And so it says in verse 17, take a look. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law to Shechaniah, the son of Aaron. And his son, Jonahan, had taken the daughter of Mishalom and the son of Barakai, you try saying these words, as, as his wife. 
Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reports my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make them afraid. You say, well, what in the world's happening here? In short, what we're seeing is that the enemy, Tobiah, it's giving insight to the inside people that he had. And basically, these were Jewish people that had intermarried within his family that were considered nobles. And these nobles were people of power, these people of money. And because of that, they chose to be self-centered and they chose to undermine everything that Nehemiah had done. And so we see the enemy revealed internally within the people of Israel. These were people that were willing to betray their own nation, betray their own God because of their self-reliance. These people lived life without reference to God, and they really didn't believe in Nehemiah when he talked about trusting in our great God. Now, before we condemn them, we need to consider whether or not we are living life in the realm of self-reliance. This morning, I would simply ask the question, do you have a holy alliance or do you have an unholy alliance with the world? A holy alliance with God where there is a dependency upon Him or is there an unholy alliance with the world? So we, at, we can evaluate that by asking the question, who is fighting the battles for us? Are we living life in our own steam or are we doing it because we're clinging to God? You see, at the end of the story, we face this issue of alliances. What is our alliance? Is it with a holy God or not? And see, we live in a world where we can do things on our own steam. I know sometimes we can live, we can say, okay, I could just be a figurehead. I don't have to have the Word of God. Yeah, I'll have it, I'll take it, I'll play the role, I'll go to church, I'll sing my songs, and I'll pray my prayers, but I'm just not going to allow it to get too far into me. I'll kind of play the middle of the road. I'll kind of be lukewarm. No, I'm not going to be a crazy fanatical for Jesus, but I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be like really, really worldly. I'll just be somewhere in between. My friends, this is who these people were. They were the tweeners. They were the people that stuck in between God and the world. And they were doing things in their actions that hurt the gospel. Three principles and three questions. Do we have our laser focus on the most important thing. What is the most important thing? Principle number two. Are we paying close attention to our character? Who is it that we're looking approval for? And the third principle. Truth will always point us to safety. How do we view truth? Really in our life. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us. Help us to be a people of leadership. Help us to be a people that truly cling to you with all of our hearts. And I thank you that there are so many within the body of God, Christ that are clinging to you. But Lord, if there is this sense of the middle of the road, if there is this sense of just being a figurehead, I pray that you would challenge our hearts 
that you would pull us, to draw us towards you. Maybe there would be some that would say, just in obedience to you, I'm going to be baptized. Just in obedience to you, I am going to take a greater intentional responsibility of leadership in my home in teaching the Word of God. I've never really done that before. I'm kind of afraid of it, but I'm going to do it. But some would say, I'm going to start by just drawing close to you by reading your Word and seeing what your Word has to say to me today. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see how important it is to draw close to you and for us to be the kind of leader that you want us to be. Lord, you are our victor. With you, we can do anything. We can conquer anything. Help us to be those kind of people. In Christ's name, amen.